Well, welcome to X Church, and I want to welcome everybody that's tuning in online. We're honored to have you with us. And if you're joining us for the first time, maybe someone invited you to show up today, I just want you to know you're kind of catching us in the middle of a really important conversation. We really believe that there are hard questions that we all face in life. And we're trying to dive deeper and kind of seek real answers in the midst of these big origin questions. And matter of fact, we know that not only do we, uh, do we have questions, and hopefully I'm trying to help you kind of process how to think about them, but I also know that as we talk about these things, it might bring more questions you have to the surface. And so we've already had quite a few questions come in, but I want to encourage you again that if you have any questions, especially today, because today might be the most challenging week of them all so far, that you can text those questions to Origins, okay? You just text Origins to 94,000. So simply get out your phone. So today, if I say something that just really kind of eats at you, it kind of gets under your skin because of something that you heard someone say one time, feel free to send it in as a question. We're going to take a look at all of the questions, okay? But what we're trying to do is we're trying to see where do faith and science intersect? Because a lot of times it feels like they're on opposite ends of the spectrum and they're mortal enemies fighting to the death. And I really believe that there's a space where you can live with intellect and with scientific evidence and with faith. And so that's kind of what we're talking about. Now I want to go over the past couple weeks real fast before we jump into today's. Before I do that, I have uh, something that I need some volunteers for, in fact, um, you don't even have to come up here, but I've got some cash on one of these. So I, is there anybody up front here, whatever, I want to get people up front that would like to take your uh, chances at unlocking a bike lock during the message? Do you want to? You want to? Okay. You, you want to? Who wants to? Get ready if you do. Okay. Here's the thing. Uh, I've got a bike lock with three combination on it. I've got one with four and one with five. Now here's the thing. Whoever wants to attempt the five, if you unlock it during the message, you get my $100. And this is mine, my $100 bill. So you said you want to try it. You want to try five? Or you want to do three or four? You want to do four? Okay, you don't get anything for four. Are you sure? Okay, that's fine. You can try four. All right, ready? All right, don't drop it. Okay. All right, who wants to take the five? Anybody around here want to take the five? Over here? I guess someone you want. You want the five? Come, all right, come up here real quick. Come on, come on, come on. All right. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> All right, all right, who's going to take the three? Anybody here? Somebody? All right, there you go. All right, now you have to pay attention while you try to open the bike lock, okay? So, and uh, just, just you do that while we talk for a little bit, and we'll have some fun today, all right? Now, if you missed any of the previous weeks, um, the first week we talked about this big, real philosophical question, how do I know God's real? Where did God come from? And so we kind of talked through that. Week two, last week, we got into some physics, some science. Maybe you thought it was a little bit too geeky. I don't know. But we tried to ask this really big question, where did the universe come from? And, uh, and I, I really think all of these are important questions. We have to learn how to answer all of them. Not just I want to answer the one I, I feel confident in, but you actually need to address all of these questions. Now, we spent last week most of our time looking through the lens of a telescope. Today, we're going to look through the lens of a microscope. Okay, today's question really is, and welcome to biology class, we're going to talk some biology, and this question is this, where did we come from? Okay, when I say we, I'm talking about life on earth. More specifically, can I say this? I'm talking about your life on earth. I'm talking about you. So you can read this, right? Where did you come from? Now, I know some of you are ready to give me the answer that you learned in health class. 
We're not in health class. We're in biology. We're going to just skip right past that one. I'm going to assume you all, most of you, some of you are young looking. Okay, not everybody, but we're going to skip right past that. That's why we have ex-kids. Okay, we're not going to talk about that today. I wasn't going to anyway, so you're safe. You know what I, I discovered? This is my experience growing up. Now, you may not have, and I, I, I'm honored if you're here and you'd say, hey, I'm an atheist or I'm agnostic. Man, we have so many people that come and they're a part of this community, don't believe what I believe, and I just want you to hear this. You're welcome to be part of this community. You do not have to believe what I believe to enjoy and be part of this community. So please hear that. But I grew up in a faith context. I grew up in a Christian home and went to a Christian school for many years of my life. And, and so I, I kind of... When it comes to this like question of biology, there was only two possible answers. That's it. Two possible answers to the origin of life. Where do we come from? And my guess is you probably felt this as well growing up. And we're going to go to our little tool here, our teaching tool. And so if you like to take notes, this might give you something to write down. We're in biology class. Okay, this is not biology 101. We're, we're in biology 414 or something like that. Okay, it's a little bit deeper than biology 101. But we talked about this last week, and I said that there's two basic ways to view the world, right? This is our worldview, right? There's theism, and there's, does anybody remember? Atheism. Kind of two basic ways to view the world, right? A theist believes there's a God. I'm not saying what particular God, any particular God, just there is a God that is out there beyond space and time. Atheists would say, no, there's no God. It's just the material world that we live in. That's all we have. We're a product of cosmic chance, okay? That, that would be this. Here's the challenge. I grew up, and there were, this is what really created like enemies out of faith and science. It's like, pick one. Either you believe in God and and then we're going to talk about what that means you have to believe about the origin of life. Or you don't believe in God, and this is what that means that you have to believe about life. And what, what I find is that there's actually a lot more nuance in between the two. And maybe our interpretation, even in the faith context, doesn't have to be so binary. So what I want to show you today is I want you to consider this, not just opposite ends, but I want you to consider this like ends of a spectrum. Okay? Ends of a spectrum, maybe you could consider this like a spectrum of faith, right? Here's faith, and maybe you'd say no faith, but I believe atheism actually is a lot of faith. But just, just for sake of argument, we'll just consider this a spectrum. And you may not know this, but there's actually a variety of different ways, even in a theist context, I want to say a Christian context, to interpret the beginning of life. And I want to actually show you, I'm going to write out along this uh, this. Spectrum, I want to write out just several different viewpoints that people have had across the spectrum. Now, I want to take a little time to this. You might want to write these down. You might want to research them. You might want to learn more about them. You may not care, in which case you just work on your bike lock. Okay, so going across this, let, let's, let's start on the far left, which I'm going to say is the most literal interpretation, people take very little, of Genesis chapter 1. Okay, so we're going to start there. Over here, we're, I'm going to call this, this is the young earth creationism, okay? Young earth creationism, ye. Also, Kanye, ye. His, <laughs> it's named after ye. Ye creationism, he came up with this. 
He did not come up with this, okay? Young Earth creationism basically believes that the Genesis 1 account is literal, that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days, and if you calculate from Adam all the way down, then the world is only somewhere between six to 10,000 years old, okay? Now, as you can see, those of you that have maybe gone to school and maybe you sat in science class and your geology class, what scientists have discovered through radiocarbon dating and other things is that they would say that the earth is actually somewhere around four and a half billion years old, 4.55, 54, whatever, you round up 4.6 billion years old, okay? So you can see right away, this is gonna be in stark contrast when we get down to the other end, okay? Young earth creationism, maybe that's how you grew up, all right? Then move over and we're gonna call this, this is the day-age view. Day-age view. What's the day-age view? Um, have you ever heard this? Um, some people will take the, the days of creation, and then they'll apply. They'll say, it's literal, but it's not. And then they'll apply something that Peter wrote in the New Testament where he said, a day to us is like a thousand years to the Lord. And so they say, well, what if each one of those days was a thousand years? Okay, well, now the days of creation took about 6,000 years. Then you add on that the age of humanity since then, following all the genealogical record, and we're somewhere around 12 to 15 or 18,000 years. Again, still stark contracts from what science tells us around 4.6 billion years. Okay, just want to point out these views. Next, we're going to move over, and this one we'll call, is historic creationism. What is historic creationism? It's this idea that believes that God created the world in six 24-hour literal days. However, if you were here last week, there's a little bit of a gap. There's a difference between Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, when God created all matter, but it was, the earth was formless and void. And then when God actually created, said, let there be light, that, that could be a period of time that could be millions or billions of years. So it kind of brings in, hey, we don't know, and maybe the... 4.6 billion, maybe that's correct, we don't know. And, and then maybe God created uh, life after that in six 24-hour days. So again, we're just kind of moving along this spectrum. As we get here toward the middle, it, it gets a little bit different. This we're gonna call, is called literary framework. Liter, literary, okay, literary framework. What is literary framework? This is where it kind of starts to deviate from the literal. It says, I, I don't believe Genesis 1 is a literal interpretation, but I believe it is a literary interpretation of what God did. So what does that mean? It means I don't consider it literal and then six 24-hour days and steps, but I, I feel like it's a theological thing where God's trying to tell us what he did, maybe why he did it. And so literary framework sometimes organizes the days of creation not as literal sequential days, but actually explaining something. Like, for example, they would say the first three days of creation seem to be about forming God's forming the skies and separating the waters and forming the oceans and forming the land. But the second group of three days seem to be about filling. God's filling the heavens with the stars. He's filling the waters with fish, filling the air with birds, filling the land with animals, okay? So they see a, a forming and a filling and say it's more literary than it is literal. You follow me? Are you all following me? Okay, as we move down, uh, a new one that has kind of developed more recently called intelligent design. 
This one has kind of taken shape over the last 20 or 30 years. How many have ever heard of intelligent design? Raise your hand if you've heard of it. See, I, I found a lot of people do sometimes. It's called ID. Here's what intelligent design kind of theory is. It's basically removing the theological construct from the conversation. It's saying based on the science, scientific evidence, we believe that the evidence points to a designer, okay, but does not posit that that designer is God. It could be mind, intelligence, but it's, it's trying to say, hey, listen, I know we have a real problem with these conversations, so let's get rid of them and just talk the science. That's what intelligent design. Now, let me just tell you a little secret. Almost every person you ever meet, intelligent design has a lot of faith and believes in a God. But what they're doing is they're trying to engage in a scientific conversation, okay? Then we move further over, and now we're getting to this other end of the spectrum, and you get something called theistic Evolution. I don't know if you've ever heard of theistic evolution, sometimes called evolutionary creationism. Theistic evolution, T-E, is kind of merging. Okay, theistic evolution would say there's a God. God answers the questions of the first cause. God created evolution to be the mechanism to then give us all that we have. And so God started it, but then God kind of sat back and let his creation work through evolution. Now, I will say that to me, there are some theological challenges to this as you get deeper into the Bible. But from just a standalone theory, it's like somebody who wants to take both. Now, one of the books that I gave you on the resource list uh, is from a guy named Francis Collins, who's a theistic evolutionist, probably that most outspoken, and you can read about his views if you want to read that book. Now, all the way over here on this end of the spectrum, okay, we have what I would call scientific materialism. Okay? Scientific materialism. Okay? On the atheist side of the spectrum, would basically believe the material world is all we have. There is no God. Cosmic chance, cosmic eruption, the Big Bang, okay, created somehow into the perfect constant, a world that can sustain life. Somehow that life came to be, and then it's evolved into you and me, okay? This is scientific materialism. So this is kind of like across, and this isn't all of them, but this is a significant number one of them, okay? Now, here's what I want to show you. How do all these answer the question of how did you and I get here, right? That's a great one. I think we can actually kind of categorize or kind of lump some of them together. For example, you could take this. Nope, nope, we can go further. Okay? And this, this group right here would all seek to answer and say that God. There's a God, a designer, a creator, a mind, however you want to do it. But these would all categorize and say there is a God behind it. Now, these two, and I'm kind of splitting the the two, these two would say the answer to the question is evolution. Are you following me? Is everybody following me in class? Okay. Make sure you're paying attention. I better not see any passing notes. Okay. So, it's fun being a teacher. Um, So over here, we got the, the, the way they answer the question is God. The way they answer this is evolution. Where do they get this from? Right? Where do we get this answer from? God, we get this answer from the what? People get it from the Bible. Primarily, now, now intelligent design, I'll leave that because it, it just looks at scientific evidence, and some of these do. Just, but Genesis, mostly Genesis 1 and 2, okay? What about evolution? Where do we get that from? 
Well, we get it from a guy named Charles Darwin, all right? Charles Darwin, who was kind of a mid-19th century biologist, and he was a guy who wrote a book that became so famous that many of you have heard of this. He released this book in 1859. It was called On the What? Anybody know? On the Origin of, of Species. Okay, Darwin releases this book and kind of really puts out this theory of evolution. At first, people are kind of resistant, but then as it goes on and then the scientific revolution's taking place, all of a sudden more and more people are going, wait a minute, this could be tenable. And so what we really have today is kind of across the spectrum of views and beliefs is that we have God, we have evolution. And kind of this is where we've landed. Now, I want to take a little bit of time, and I want to speak to, specifically, evolution today. You say, why don't you talk about this? I'm, I, I would, but here's the problem. Most of this, on this side, is not based on science. It's not. doesn't mean it's not true. I'm just saying most of these are based on what we get from the Bible. It's been handed down. We believe revelation from God. This is not scientific. You have to go to this end of the spectrum to deal with the science. And since we're talking about faith and science, we're going to talk a little bit about evolution. Now, here's what I know. Whenever someone talks about evolution or creation, people tend to lose their dang minds. For whatever reason, this is a hot button. It's a hot button in the church. It's a hot button in science circles. Like this is, and here's what I found. The people that tend to lose it the most are these and these. You ever notice that it's always the far ends of the extreme that tend to kind of get the most heated, right, in anything. And and so what what I want to say is let's all just some ground rules today. Let's all just agree that there is nuance in this, okay, to an extent, and we might be able to agree to disagree. And you know what? I can still love you, and you can still be my brother, and we can still be in a community together, and it's not the end of the world. Can I say that? Okay, I just, I just want to say that, okay? Now, you can disagree with me. I don't mind if you're wrong, but if, I'm just kidding, Okay, not really, but I am. Uh, listen, the reason why I say that is, is because if, if you're someone who believes very much so in evolution, that's okay. Let, let's have the conversation. Like, I, let's not dismiss each other because there's some real interesting things in evolution. And, and if, if you're someone who believes in creation, then maybe you don't just throw that person out because they believe in something you think isn't scientific. Okay, the truth is we are here. And so we have to ask this question. And so that's kind of my, those are my ground rules. Now, since today we're going to talk a little bit about evolution, let, let me try to get us on the same page because sometimes when you hear the word evolution, it can actually have a few different meanings. In fact, today I, I want to just kind of just quickly give you two basic agreed upon meanings uh, when it comes to evolution. Now, these, these are agreed upon not, not just in the scientific world, but everybody, okay, for the most part. So let me, let me just take up. Let's talk first about what's called microevolution. You ever heard of that, microevolution? Microevolution, this is my definition, but I think it's pretty accurate. Adaptations that take place within a species over a short period of time. Now, this is not even something that we, we debate. This is fact, okay? This is not theory. This is fact. We know this exists. 
that we have been able to observe in a short periods of time adaptations that take place in organisms most likely to adapt to their environments to survive. Okay, so for, for example, let me give you a few. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a doctor say to you when you go and you're sick all the time. And the doctor is like maybe going to try to change up your antibiotic because the doctor might say, if I keep giving you this antibiotic, your body is going to build up a resistance to it. What's happening? Your body is naturally resisting something and it's adapting to it. Okay? So there are things in life that, I, I, again, whether you say created or evolved, that we see this naturally happening. We see this with bacteria. We see this with viruses. Hello? We all got a lesson on this for the last two years. COVID-19, yeah, what have we heard all about it? That it is mutating, it's changing, right? We started with one and now we've got all these variants and we have Delta and now I just found out we have Delta Plus, which I was so confused when I heard that because I thought that was just getting a little bit extra leg room on an airline, had no idea that that was a virus adapting. Are you following me? Okay. We've seen this with moths when they would change their colors because they're trying to blend in from predators. And when the Industrial Revolution happened and buildings and trees started to change color and covered in smog, that they would actually change. And then those would pass their genetics, their hereditary, onto the next. And so you'd see moths in general getting dark. This is examples of microevolution. Why was this so important? It's because Charles Darwin, who was studying biology, okay, he's a biologist, when he was in the Galapagos Islands and he's studying different animals, one thing he noticed about finches, a little bird, he noticed that depending on the islands that he went to that their beaks were different. Some had long and pointy and skinny beaks, some had short and stubby, kind of different beaks and they different shape based on the environment, based on the wind patterns and all these different things. And so he kind of realized, wait a minute, these things have changed over time and passed on and so we have variety within the species now darwin thought hey wait a minute i got an idea what if you had enough time that over a longer period of time that could actually turn into something completely different that is what we call macro evolution let me give you a definition of macro evolution this is my definition but scientific evolutionary change that can create entirely new species over very long periods of time. So here's what Darwin kind of proposed, was that through hereditary changes, okay, over long periods of time, that we could actually create completely new body plans, completely new species. And if that is possible, here's what he said, you can trace it all the way back. Now, he did not have any of the technology that we have today and understanding what we're going to talk about in a moment. But that could be traced all the way back. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture that he first kind of drafted called the Tree of Life. Some of you just thought that was at Animal Kingdom in Disney. But it first started really Darwin talking about that we all had this common ancestor, that all life can go back. That means that plants and animals all came from the same original living life. Okay? And that from that over time, that common answer, that it just descended into, through variation over a long period of time, all kinds of different species and everything, and then eventually you and me. Okay, so now that we understand that, the reason why I say all this is because I believe that when I say macroevolution, that is what most of you immediately think about. 
When, when I say evolution, you think, oh, yeah, that's what I learned in school. That's how we all got here. That's the explanation that we've been given. Now, here's what I, I want to say. This is where, when we come over and we look at this, evolution, creation and evolution part ways at macroevolution. Here's where we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We agree on micro. We don't agree on macroevolution. Now, here's my guess. My guess is that most, if not maybe all of you, maybe not all, uh, depending on how you went to school and how you grew up, but most of you probably were taught the theory of evolution in school. It is the pro- predominant theory that is it's the only theory that is taught when it comes to how we came to be in biology and evolution. Was the, we're, we're, the, you know, we're the end result of evolution. And, and I understand that. Why? Because we live in a secular society. And a secular society is not going to teach something that has an inference to God. I, I wouldn't expect that. People are up in arms because the schools aren't teaching. I'd be glad for them to teach us, but I'm just telling you, we live in a secular society, guys. We don't live in a Christian society. Those of you who still think we do, you just need to drop that. We do not. And in a secular society, they're going to teach secular concepts, things that don't have anything to do with God. Now, here's where I, I, I see a little bit of challenge. This is at least for me. Is that today, evolution is not taught as theory. It's taught as fact. Let's be honest. Today, culturally speaking, if you work in the science field or if you teach in school, it, it is, it's not a theory, it is the only theory. And so much so that it is so culturally accepted, not just in science, but in our world today, that it is assumed to be a fact. It really is. Uh, the leading evolutionary biologist today, I think he's kind of the leading evolutionary voice of our day, is a guy named Richard Dawkins. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's written several kind of very, very well-known books, The Selfish Gene, The Blind Watchmaker, The God Delusion. These are just a few of the books that Richard Dawkins has, has um, written. Evolutionary biologist. And I want you to hear something that he said. It came out in a, uh, a timepiece, a New York Times um, article in 1989. And I want you to hear, this was in 1989, how he talked about people that did not believe in evolution. Okay, 1989, here's what he said. It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone, somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is either ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. That's, that's, that's pretty bold. He's, he's saying this. If you find somebody and they say, ah, I'm just not really sure, I don't know that I believe evolution is the answer, here's what you need to know. At very best, they're ignorant. They just don't know. They haven't been taught. Okay? They could be stupid, maybe should be locked up, or I might even say wicked. Now, can I just tell you, first of all, that that kind of attitude is not only is it unscientific of him, but I would go so far as to say that is moving science from a field of study to a religion. Here's what we know about religion. I know this. I've been around all my life. Religion, religious people say, I'm right and you're wrong. And if you don't agree with me, you're sinful or wicked. It's religion. 
And so today it is so widely accepted that this is the answer, that there's no room for conversation, scientific conversation, and new discovery. And listen, if you have that mindset and attitude, you might as well go back to the 1600s and be the religious church that wouldn't listen to anything that Copernicus or Galileo came up with. This is the same, this is the same problem we've had back and forth, back and forth. How do we... How do we answer the question, the origin of life? Let, let me first, I want to I try to address the, the elephant in the room when you talk about the origin of life. And that is, how did it start? That's, what, that's the big question. How did we get organic matter in the first place? That is the biggest and most challenging question that plagues scientists today when it comes to this question. There have been a few ideas. They're not theories. Some of them are hypotheses. They're trying to test for them. Okay, these are not theories, but ideas that have um, uh, been a bit challenging. I, I want to just show you four of them real quick, okay? The first one um, is sometimes called primordial soup. Have you ever heard of that? A little bit like Campbell's soup, but a little bit different, you know, alphabet soup and all that. Primordial soup is a reference to what scientists believed, okay, the early atmosphere might have been like that could have presented us with organic matter. All right. In other words, I think maybe the atmosphere billions of years ago and when water finally, when, when there was condensation and water formed, that maybe there was like ponds, like warm ponds. Okay, we all know what happens in warm ponds. Things grow in warm ponds, right? And so, the, and so what, what some believed was that maybe it was out of that that it emerged. Now, there were two scientists in the mid-1900s, 1953, Stanley and Miller, that did kind of a famous experiment. They were going to prove that it's possible. And so they created this contraption, and they took some of the elements that most people believed were around back then and put it in water. And then in this closed environment, they shocked it with electricity, representing lightning, okay, lightning strike. And out of that, what they ended up with was some water, okay, this kind of like brownish water, And when they looked at the water with a microscope, guess what they found? They found amino acids. Now, some of you, when you hear amino acids, you're like, oh, that's like my pre-workout. That's the the stuff I drank to get me strong and build muscle, right? Because here's why. Amino acids are the building blocks of protein. Now, so they thought, I think we solved it. The problem is, is that protein, not just amino acids, but now I have to get to proteins, protein doesn't self-replicate. Protein doesn't, like, multiply on its own. That's a problem because we've, there's a lot of species and a lot that's evolved and plant life, and so that, that is not going to work on its own. And then they end up finding years later that the elements that they had kind of done in their experiment that they thought existed did not exist, and so that kind of nullified their experiment. Other ones have been done since, but none of them worked, okay? So primordial soup. The next one um, is metabolism hypothesis. And some of you are thinking, oh, that's my problem is metabolism. I know. Metabolism hypothesis is just this, like, chemical reactions and um, reacting with the energy in the environment to, to kind of build things, okay? I had someone ask me this question. They said, wait a minute, I thought metabolism breaks things down. Stop asking questions. Metabolism hypothesis, okay? The, the, the one, though, that's not really kind of, there's not a lot of people that jump on that train. The one that people are really on today is called RNA world hypothesis. Now, have you ever heard of RNA? It's in your cells, okay? And RNA is different than DNA, 
But RNA kind of works like an enzyme, a catalyst, and, and we see that in our cell, RNA has been used to create things. And so what they're trying to do, and they're scientists who are right now trying to match the environment and see if, through evaporation and other things, that they can actually create a basic version of RNA. They're trying. Hasn't happened yet, but there's, there's scientists that are trying, okay? They're coming up with ideas. These are ideas. Uh, let me give you another one. It's kind of weird. Um, panspermia. So you need to write that down and go study it later. Panspermia. Okay, just if you're wondering what it is. Now, some would joke about it, but there are scientists that actually believe that this is maybe the most significant way it happened. Pan, pan meaning outside of us. Okay, and spermia. Basically, here's the idea that either there's alien civilization or extraterrestrial life, or there could be meteors, which we've seen, and we've, the Earth has had meteors that have hit that from outer space that have maybe brought organic matter with it to the Earth, and then you get into the pond, and then oh, there you go. So these are kind of the basic thoughts about the origin of life. Now, let me just say this. There have been zero experiments in the lab that have proven to produce any self-replicating living cell from abiotic material. Zero. I'm not saying we won't someday. What I'm saying is it hasn't happened yet. So this is a significant challenge. But here's what I have found. Most people just kind of turn a blind eye to that really big problem. And then they just say, but we're here. You and I are here. In the flesh and blood, we're here. So let's just, we can't answer that. Maybe nobody was around back then, but we do know we're around. And so let's try to answer the question from our perspective. And so let's talk about um, evolution. Now I want to talk about some of the new advancements in science over the last 50, 60, 70 years that have actually kind of given us what we understand of evolution today. Now, the, the big mystery getting unlocked has happened through the growth of one particular field. Now, some of you are going to get really excited about this because some of you love this stuff and you're weird. But you're so excited because the growth of this one field that has really changed everything, and that is molecular biology. Well, ain't nobody that excited about it here. Okay. Yeah, woo! Mm. Molecular biology. Oh, I see. Yeah! Give it up for the molecules, right? Molecular biology. Okay. So there's been some advancements in the field of molecular biology. Uh, one specific one that I want to talk about that actually did more for evolution than any of the previous ones. In 1953, the same time that Stanley and Miller are trying to figure out you know, the primordial soup, you have two other scientists named Watson and Crick. Okay, James Watson and Francis Crick. Who they discover something fascinating. Now, they're the only ones working on this, but they got credit for it. The double helix of our DNA. Inside the nucleus of every cell is DNA, okay? And what they discovered is the structure of it is this spiraling double helix. Now, here's what they found out as they were studying and figuring this out. This is where molecular biology was taken off. What they discovered was that along this spine of this structure are four bases called nucleotides. And these nucleotides, here's what they discovered finally. When they're arranged in a certain order or sequence, two of them are always connected to each other, but then they're in order going up this ladder, that it's what actually creates the genetic playbook for you and me. 
that there's a sequence and an order to it, and that order matters. Here's what they discovered. It's like code. I don't know if I got any programmers in here, okay? I used to work in information technology. I used to write some code in Unix. So it's like if you're a programmer of code, you'll understand there's an order, there's a sequence to it. Now, here's the thing. We all know about codes because we use codes every day. You don't even realize this when you sit at a computer. There's a digital code of zeros and ones, okay, base two language, binary that translates all your ASCII text. You didn't need to know all that. I, okay, move on, Tim. And then... But here's what we do know is that we all speak in code, right? Our, our code is a 26-symbol alphabet. That's our code. This is how we communicate. But, but what do we know? That you have to put those letters in a proper order in order for it to make sense. Can you imagine if I came out here today and I said, forget the code. We don't need the code. And I just come out here and the way we communicate is I just give you the symbols. I just say, and you're like, oh my gosh, your sermon's blowing my mind. And so you talk back to me, you're like, buh, duh, zuh, kuh, And then we just high five each other and we just... What do we know about the code of our language is that it's got to be in the right sequence. Guess what Watson and Crick found out? When this is in a proper sequence, it can create body parts. It can create organs. It can create all kinds of things because it's like code. I, I, Bill Gates, probably one of the smartest programmers that we've known, right, in the last 50 years. I want you to hear what he had to say about DNA. He said DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. When we look at the genetic information that builds us, it is more elaborate than the most sophisticated software that we can program. But it happened randomly. And it created us. Natural selection acting on variation, mutation, over really long periods of time. Now, this was a huge breakthrough for evolutionists. Here's why. Because they, they, they could not agree. Darwin's evolutionists struggled because they didn't have a mechanism. They said, okay, hereditary traits. And, and if they changed and it worked, and then it passed on, and it changed and it worked, and it passed on, it changed and it worked, we have enough time that we could create new body plans, new phenotypic complexity, new body plans, Right? And the problem is that it wasn't working until all of a sudden we discover DNA. So that's where we get something new that came to light for evolution, okay, called neo-Darwinism. Some of you thought I was going to talk about the matrix. Okay, neo-Darwinism. Neo-Darwinism is taking the idea that Darwin had but now our understanding of genetics, Mendelian, Mendelian genetics, Mendel was giving us all kinds of understanding of the genes, and we put them together, and all of a sudden now we've unlocked it. We have the mechanism that can create. And here's what we know is that if you change just a little bit here and there, that, that you do get a variety of species. I, I don't know if you know this, but you are about 90% the same genetic makeup as your cat. Yeah. Which must mean that 10% means a lot. 
okay? You, you are, because, because they would say, wait a minute, we have the answer. It's right in here. If, if it just mutates and it changes the order, then it could create something completely new. That makes a lot of sense. The challenge is, is that molecular biology turns out to be a double-edged sword. What do I mean by that? I mean that as scientists really began to discover what they were talking about with neo-Darwinism, mathematicians and all of them, they started to go, wait a minute, we see a problem. Houston, we have a problem. And this started to come to light in the mid-60s. So in 1966 in Worcester Institute in Pennsylvania, um, there was a convention that uh, all of these mathematicians, computer programmers, physicists, okay, these scientists said, we want to meet with you evolutionary biologists because what we're understanding doesn't make sense. And so there was this convention uh, that, that happened, and here's the title of the convention. This is so exciting. You would have loved to have been it. Mathematical Challenges to the Neo-Darwinian Interpretation of Evolution. I thought to myself, can you imagine how exciting that convention must have been with all those scientists and mathematicians together? Oh, my gosh. Now, here's what they said. They said, now, to evolutionary biologists, they said, we understand that you've got this DNA and you say this code. And here's what they said. But we're computer programmers and mathematicians. And we see a problem. They, they, they said, here's what we see as a problem. Answer this for us. Whenever we have code, when somebody writes a program, okay, and you have code, if someone changes sometimes just one digit in the code, it stops working. Some of you know what this is like. Every single time your phone doesn't work and you're waiting on Apple for another stinking update. Something's broken in the code. Here's what they said. They said, wait a minute. Whenever you modify the code just a little bit, it breaks it. It doesn't create better software. This is our understanding. So tell us how it works with biology. And this was a big challenge, real big challenge. Now, some of you don't need to hear from mathematicians and scientists to know this because some of you know the, the real life experience of genetic disorders. My wife works in the NICU and she sees up close in front babies that are born with genetic disorders where the gene sequence didn't quite work the way it usually does, intended. And all of a sudden now you have babies and you have kids that have cystic fibrosis and they have cleft palate and they have um, either forms of autism or they may have, um, they're born with Down syndrome. Okay, this, it goes on and on. This is, this is the reality. And some of you know this personally, whether it's a family member, a child, a friend, someone that has a child that is dealing. We, we never see the genetic variation create something more, it always denigrates. And that's what the scientists said, show us how this works. But it just kind of, neo-Darwinism just kind of kept building steam because something, and, and you'd have scientists that would speak up. But here's what we found today. If you're a scientist and you speak out against evolution, you'll be ostracized in your community. But there was a guy named Michael Denton who's an Australian-born um, biologist molecular biologist, 
And as he was looking at this, he said, wait a minute, I, there's, a real, there's a real problem we have here. There's a numeric problem we have here. In fact, he released a book called Evolution, A Theory and Crisis in 1985. And in his book, he talked about the challenge that we have of genetic code producing something valuable by random mutation. Random, unguided, undirected. That's what evolution is. There's no God that's going, hey, change this gene, change this. Has to do it on its own, okay? And um, so he, he, in one of his chapters, he kind of described it like this mathematically. He said, in order to have a 12-digit or 12-character phrase in the English language that makes sense. So imagine taking 12 letters, symbols, put it all together to make a phrase. He said, out of the 26 possibilities, however you want to arrange them. But you, he, here's what he said. He said, there are 100 trillion other combinations that are incoherent. For every one coherent 12-character phrase. There's a 100 trillion options that are incoherent. Wow, that would seem like if there's random change, it's far more likely to not produce something better than to produce something better. That's what he said. And he kind of produced this idea that kind of became known as the combinatory problem. Okay, or, or as uh, David Berlinski, who is a mathematician, a philosopher, he dubbed it the combinatory inflation. Now, before I move on, I want to talk about this. Where's my bike lock people? Bike lock people. Okay, you got the five combination, right? Okay, well, hey, I got 100 bucks for you. you want to Come and show me. Did you get it? You didn't get it. Okay, you can bring it back. Give it up. He tried. He tried. He tried. He tried. Nice try. Okay, who had the four? Who had the four? You did. Did you get it? I was going to give you money. Okay, you didn't get it. And, and who had the three? You had the three. Did you get it? No. No one got it. Woo, thank God. Although I was going to say, if the dude hit, if he hit the five combo, I was going to be like, there is a God. We're done. Let's pray. Okay, here's why. This is an inflation problem. With the three-digit lock, there's a thousand possibilities, but only one right answer. One in a thousand. With a four-digit, just add one little dial, right? How bad can it be? 10,000. Multiplies by 10 every time, right? Because there's 10 options. If you have a five-digit lock, look, dude, you, you had no chance. You had a one in a 100,000 chance of getting it right. Now, here's what evolutionists would say, but we just need more time. Okay, I get it. We need more time because you do need, you need a lot of time. But here's the, here's the challenge when it comes to the science of it, not just the numbers. Let's talk about the science of it now. Okay, what builds body plans starts with protein folds, okay? The most basic thing, you have amino acids, the building blocks that create proteins. Let me show you what this looks like, okay? found this fascinating. Amino acids chained together. Now there's 20, I know some of you are just writing the edge of your seat. You're gonna write this down because you're just like, I wanted to know this. There's 20 different uh, um, amino acids out there, okay? Some say 22, but we ignore them. 20 basic amino acids, okay? And what they do is they, they all chemically connect to each other, and when they, they form these chains, okay, and then as they all kind of interact with each other, some are formed in a helix, some are formed in like this, this like flat form, that when they all kind of combine and connect with each other, you can see what they do is they create what's called a protein fold. Why does this matter? Because this is a 3D piece of you. You need a protein fold to actually build something, okay? Physical, like you and I are 3D, we're not 2D, all right? And so you need amino acids 
coming together chemically to create protein folds, and then you need all kinds of protein folds to create new body plans. Are you following me? This is just kind of real basic biology, but it's important. Now, a scientist named Douglas Axe kind of set out to discover, and he used a, a technique with experimenting, like what is the smallest amino acid chain that you need to create a protein fold? Okay, and what he discovered as he began, and he started with that, and then he did this experiment. I want to show you this in a minute. He said the smallest kind of protein fold, 150 amino acids chained together to create this one functional protein fold. Now, he did this experiment. When he was doing this experiment, he did this uh, in a way to discover the number of possibilities. So, simple math. Okay, back to math and science. Here's what he said. Number of possible amino acid combinations. To make... An amino acid chain of 150 amino acids, okay? And that's a really, really small one, by the way, right? There's 20 possibilities of amino acids that could be in any sequence or order. What that gives you is 20 to the 150th power, okay? Here's, here's your chances. You have a 1 times 10 to the 195th power possible combinations. That's a 1 with 195 zeros after it. That's how many possible combinations. So I want you to picture an amino acid chain to create a protein fold. This is the smallest of them. We need a 150 dial bike lock. 150, right? With 20 options on each wheel. Okay? So you following the math? Right. Here, for functional proteins, ones that work and actually do something, right? For every one functional protein fold that we have, there are 10 to the 77 non-functional combinations for every one protein fold that works. So here's what this means. The odds are far more likely when doing a random search of producing a non-functional combination than a single working protein fold. By the way, you don't need just one protein fold to create some new body plan or animal or organism. You need many protein folds. And so what we have is we had scientists that were kind of brave enough to go, wait a minute, as we understand genes, this doesn't work. Now, some of you go, okay, Douglas Axe and Stephen Meyer, he's, he kind of really talked about the bike lock combination thing in his book. Well, they're intelligent design, okay, can I, can I just quickly, and we're running out of time, but I just want to show you real fast. They're not the only ones. There's actually a lot of evolutionary biologists who are atheists and agnostics who all have recognized that we have a real problem for how this works. L let me just show you this. Uh, Altenberg 16. We'll go to that. Okay, in, in, in Austria in 2008, there was a group of 16 evolutionary biologists. I'm not talking about these people. I'm talking about evolutionary biologists that all met together. And they put their names out there, which is dangerous. They put their name out there, and they said, it doesn't work. Neo-Darwinisms, this, this idea of genetic information, here's what they said. It doesn't work. I know we like to say it's fact, but they actually went on the record and said it doesn't work. Here's what they said. We need a new mechanism. Now, they're not saying we believe in God. They're saying we need a new mechanism that does work because this doesn't. Again, you're not going to hear this 
I, I just wanted to put this out there so you can chew on this because there, no one's going to say this. You heard what I said Richard Dawkins said. You're insane if not wicked if you believe that it doesn't work. This is the, the mentality that people have lived in, okay? There, there's another American biologist. Her name was Lynn Margulis. Now, she passed away in 2011. She was actually married to Carl Sagan. Well, I talked about him a little bit last week for a while. She was married to him for a little bit. And um, she's an American biologist. And she's an evolutionist. She's also an agnostic. She was an agnostic. She did not believe in God. And um, I want you to hear something that she said. Now, she said, I, she's a Darwinist. She believes that there's, there's, he's got to be onto something. But where it's evolved to, neo-Darwinism, the actual mechanism to try, she says, I don't believe it. And here's what she said. Here's her quote. Natural selection eliminates, so it, it does eliminate the weaker, and maybe it maintains, but it doesn't create. Neo-Darwinists say that new species emerge when mutations occur and modify an organism. I believed it until I looked for evidence. And I couldn't find the evidence. Again, this is not a faith person. This is someone who says, I don't believe in God on the other end that's saying that we have a problem. And then you've got in 2016, this is the last example I'll give you. In 2016, I just wanted to show you this is current. At the Royal Society of London, which is the oldest scientific body that exists in our world today, okay? A guy by the name of Gerd Mueller, who's an Austrian-born um, evolutionary biologist. He's an evolutionary biologist. He got up at their annual meeting and presented. Now, again, th this, in your, this would be professional suicide. He got up and he's released stuff on us that he basically said, evolution as we know it through neo-Darwinism does not work to create something new. Now, I'm telling you what atheists and agnostics who are brave enough to come out and say have discovered through their science. Okay. Now, what I want you also to hear is that I... I ran out of time a long while ago, and I didn't touch a breadth of topics that I wanted to talk about. I didn't talk about issues with geology and the Cambrian explosion of all of these fossilized body uh, types that came about 520 million years ago per science, that actually there's no fossilized record before it to show anything in transition. I have time to talk through. I was going to, I don't have time to talk about that. I have time to talk about the irreducible complexity of within the cell. I have time to talk about how the cilia, the little arms that stick out on the end of the cell that move it, that seem like they're just so simplistic, are actually machines that, that, that chemists, molecular biologists, say it'd be impossible. All of their parts do not make sense unless they work together. How could they have gradually evolved? I'm, this goes on and on and on. On top of that, we still don't have an answer for the mind, not the brain, but the mind. We don't have an answer for consciousness. We don't have an answer for all of these things. And so I, I know that it's fact. But when I step back and I look at it, and again, I've got a lens on. I, I, I will own it. That I, I believe in a God. But when I step back and look at it, I feel like all of it just seems to point to there being a designer, a programmer, a creator, someone who could also, as we talked about last week, be the answer for how the universe began as well as how life began. I understand. I've got my rose-colored glasses on. I understand. But what I find interesting is that scientists can't agree. I, the loudest voices in our culture 
will tell you you're wicked if you believe otherwise. But what I find interesting is, listen, these folks can never agree with these folks, and many of these folks don't agree with themselves when it comes to their own theories. And so what am I to make of it all? In fact, some of you are going, can we just get out to lunch? What does it matter? Because my guess is that uh, some of you, when it comes to these kind of questions, you, you don't even, you're not even thinking about the origin of life. You're, just, you're saying, does this really matter? I can go to my job tomorrow, and my wife and I will go out for dinner this week, and we're going to take the kids out to do stuff. And does it really matter? It doesn't matter because I'm here, and I just make the most of this life. I understand. I, I would argue that in one sense it does matter. Maybe it doesn't matter when we go, where did the origin of life begin? Maybe that doesn't matter. But maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the question we, shouldn't be, we should be asking is not about the origin of life, but maybe the question we should be asking is this one. What about the origin of you? You see, I, I find that sometimes we get lost in science so much that it just becomes science and it doesn't become personal. But let me tell you this, good science is personal. It's personal. Oh, I know it's objective. I know that. But it is personal because it does, it speaks of truth. It speaks of life. The truth is that you and me were here. And I don't know if you asked that question, but what about the origin of you? That's a great question because here's, here's what we've discovered. If you're one who, looking at all the evidence, says, I believe in a God, then it leads you to this understanding of you. This is why it matters. It leads you to this understanding of you. And that is that you're a product of God's creation. It does matter. Because if there's a God, and he created all of this, and you're part of it, and you're product of what God created, and there's a reason for that. Now, if this this is what you hold. And here's how you think about you. You are a process of evolution. You're either the product of God's creation or you're the process of evolution. You say, is there really any difference? Oh, there's a huge difference. It is the biggest difference. Please hear me today. Because one of the original architects of neo-Darwinism, a guy named George Simpson, I want you to hear real brief. This is what he said about us. If you're a process of evolution, he said, man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. In other words, evolution, there, there's, there's no purpose. You're the result of a process any kind of value or meaning or purpose you have in life, listen to me, it's illusory. It's not real. That, that's, what, that's what you're left to believe. You and I are animals. We're highly, higher evolved animals, but we're animals. That's fine. And maybe that's true. Maybe it's true. That's for you to work out. But if you're, if you're the product of God's creation, can I, can I just tell you, it means something. When you ask the question, who and why, science asks how, why God, why would you create me? 
I love how the psalmist, let me close with this. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, I, I love this, just listen. This is, this is, this is the psalmist, I must believe it was David. This is his response, thinking of being God's creation. He said, oh yes, you shaped me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God, you're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration, what a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made. I love this bit by bit, molecular biology, how I was sculpted from nothing into something like an open book. It says, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I had lived one day. That, my friends, is purpose. If there's a God, then hear it. There's a purpose for you. Some of you go, what's that purpose? It's not to do something. Please hear me. It's not to do something. That's not why. This is why. Say, what's the purpose? Relationship. Relationship. You see, human species, we might have similar DNA, but we're very, very different. We all know that. We're different from the rest of the world. Why? Because God deposited something inside of humans. He said, I'm gonna make man in my image. There's a difference, a consciousness, a soul. There's a yearning inside for something more. And some of you go, I've been on the scientific journey for so long and I've been sure and I don't know if I believe there's a God, but I can tell you this, there's something inside of you that is longing for him. There's something inside of you that wishes it to be true that there's a God. What is that? Can I tell you what that is? It's this thing that God wired and programmed inside of you and me that says, I want a relationship. And the reason why you crave relationship within your own species is because you've been pre-wired for relationship with your creator, God. That's what God wants. And I hope that some of you step into it. Would you pray with me today? God, in this moment, I'm grateful. God, I, I believe that you created life I don't know how. I'm not worried about all the theories. But God, my personal experience with you, and I even see the scientific evidence that leads me to believe in you. God, I, I, I believe that there's a reason and a purpose. And God, I pray for all of us that maybe do believe in this moment. I, I pray that we have a new way to view life. I pray that, God, we could, we could, no matter how hard it gets, we always have a reason to worship you, to be grateful, to, to thank you. God, thank you for the oxygen in my lungs. I thank you, God, you created oxygen for me to survive on. Thank you for the blood that pumps through my body with a heart that pumps it and nobody touches or controls it. God, I, I know that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, God, marvelously complex. But I also know, God, that 
There's something in all of us that's longing to know you. I pray for those in this moment, God, that maybe have said, I've never believed in you. I pray that maybe today a spark of something takes root in their soul. That maybe as their eyes would open, that maybe they would see, God, you're real and you're near. And I thank you, God, that you created us not just as an experiment, but God, to have a relationship with you. And that that is made possible through Jesus. So God, I, I pray this week, I pray that God, maybe you would give us a fresh revelation of how to see life and that every person we see is valuable. Even the ones we disagree with, they're valuable because God, you created them. We pray all of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to this message. I hope that it encouraged you and inspired your faith. If God is doing something in your life, would you take a moment and let us know? We want to connect with you and we want to be able to pray for you. All you have to do is shoot us an email to hello at the x.church or you can always send us a DM on one of our social media platforms. And if you know somebody that would also be encouraged by this very message, why not take a moment and just share it with them right now? And as always, I want to say thank you to every single person who so generously financially supports this ministry so we can continue to get messages like these out to people all over the world. We believe God is building something special and you're a significant part of it. Until next time, have a great day.